Welcome to Where Next, conversations with Matt Project Office, a design studio that crafts physical products for the digital age, bridging the gap between people and technology, the material world and the virtual. Where Next is a new podcast series tackling the role design can play in shaping our everyday lives. Each episode, we invite an expert panel to pull apart a pressing social issue and discuss where design may be able to make a difference. So thank you, everyone, for joining us for this episode of Where Next Conversations with MAP Project Office. My name is Ollie Stratford. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Desenio, and I'm delighted to be chairing this conversation, which has the slightly provocative title of Can Design Break the Plastic Taboo? And while we were preparing for this conversation, we started to think a little bit about what that might mean, because on the surface, that's kind of a surprising statement in terms of do we really have a plastic taboo? I was looking up some statistics beforehand and the world is producing somewhere between 300 and 400 million tonnes of plastic waste every year. Uh, of the 7 billion tonnes of plastic waste generated globally so far, less than 10% has been recycled. That's a statistic from the UN Environment Programme and I think dates from around 2017. So the current statistic is probably even more bleak. So plastic in this world is kind of everywhere. We're using it all the time. But I think this idea of the taboo that we want to get at was this sense that at least the world is beginning to realise there are some issues around the way in which we're using plastic at present. Single-use plastic, for instance, attracts ire for its embodiment of throwaway culture. It's kind of the material of rampant consumerism. And increasingly, designers, consumers are being encouraged to think of ways we can reduce, reuse and recycle in an effort to reduce the demand for virgin plastics. Within the industry, there's a lot of pressure to create products that use as little plastic as possible in a bid to limit waste and to also put in place systems to deal with plastic at the end of a product's lifespan. But amidst this desire to reduce plastic or reframe the way in which we're using it, we became interested in this notion that we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Plastic as a material has a lot of virtues. It's lightweight, easy to process, resilient, has good hygiene properties, can be recyclable. So what we wanted to get at was if we have a plastic problem, and it seems fairly clear that we do, how do we need to reshape the way in which design is treating that material? How could we use it more sensitively? What is it good for? What could it be better framed as within the industry? And to discuss that, I'm delighted to be joined by a really strong panel that brings together industrial designers, material experts and plastic producers. So thank you to our panellists for joining us. The first to speak is Sital Solanki, the founder of Matter. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm the founder and director of Matter. I describe myself as a materials translator. What we do at Matter is really to get people to relate to materials or find a way of relating to materials. And we do that through design, advising others of how to implement materials more sustainably, and then through education. So getting more people to be aware of, as to what materials can offer us. Thank you, Sital. Now turn to Rosalie McMillan, the co-founder of Smile Plastics. 
Thanks so much for inviting me here today. Really, really looking forward to the discussions, a very, very important one. So Smart Plastics, we... Uh, we create decorative panels from 100% recycled plastics. We pride ourselves in making some of the most beautiful and sustainable materials around for commercial applications. We are based in Swansea at the moment in South Wales. We are exporting quite a bit and looking forward to scaling our operations quite a bit so that we can make bigger impact. Thank you, Rosalie. Richard Stevens, Principal at MAP Project Office. Yeah, hi there. Thanks, Ollie. And yeah, thanks everyone for joining. It's, it's great. I mean, MAP is a design studio that kind of works at that intersection between physical and digital, trying to sort of grapple with the way we interact with products and spaces and experiences, but doing that in the most responsible way possible. You know, our experience sort of spans everything from automotive to consumer electronics to furniture to aerospace. So we, we've come up against challenges using lots of different processes and materials. And I think for me, it's about delving deeper into how can we use all of the knowledge and expertise that we have collectively to engineer solutions that can resolve and, and, and bring plastic into a, you know, a more circular world. And last but not least, Pete Griffith, Director of the Industrial Design Group at Sky. Hello. Thanks for having me. I run the team of industrial designers at Sky working on the hardware products. And we've worked with, with MAP on our first television, which has been a, a, a super successful product. And a lot of the, the debate that we're going to chat about today is, is a key part of all the products that we've done. This is a, a core part of the work that we're doing here as a design team. I have a background in consumer technology for large multinationals like Nokia and, and Microsoft and also small startups like Kano Computers. I also, uh, in my part time, I'm a woodworker, which I mentioned because it's a very different kind of material to plastic. And it's kind of quite interesting to think about those together. Super. Well, let's start with quite an open question. And this is directed to the group as a whole. But Sitel, I might start with you. And this question is, what do you think the industry's current attitude and relationship towards plastics is? And Sitel, the reason I want to start with you is because in your work, I think you're someone who's very good at neither demonising nor valorising any material, but encouraging a more context specific approach to it. I have a lot to say about this, <laughs> as you can imagine. I feel like it is being demonized. And I think that's a really profound word to use when it comes to plastic. A lot of people blame plastic for the world's problems. And I think that's a really human attitude to have is to like blame others. So yeah, I think that plastic is seen as a really big problem to the pollution crisis. And yes, we are suffering with that because there's plenty of it, but we're the only ones consuming it. So if we change our habits towards how we treat plastic and also the way that we design with plastic in mind, we can alter that perception because I think plastic has so much potential, but we aren't realizing that potential we have to really shift our perceptions towards plastic and see it as something that's actually very valuable. And if we're considering how to redesign the systems, we have to consider what we already have rather than always considering making new. 
Well, Rosalie, I was wondering if perhaps you could pick up on this, because in your work with Smile Plastics, you are someone who is perhaps tackling some of those systems and thinking about the ways in which we perceive plastic and the ways in which we perceive plastic waste. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about that and follow on from some of the themes Cito has raised. There's so much, there's so much to say, and it's hard to kind of know where to begin sometimes when tackling such a big theme. I'm not a plastics historian, but I think our relationship to plastics has probably changed quite a lot over the years. Um, in, in, you know, in the early days when, you know, when it was first in, invented, I think people were absolutely amazed about these marvelous material properties that you had with plastics. I believe you probably had to, to pay, a few, you know, quite a bit of money to have it. It was really kind of high, high value. Then things changed, you know, it was all about convenience and disposability in mid-century. And I think that we have a really difficult relationship with plastics now. And I think we are all developing this revulsion towards a material that actually has these immense power and, you know, is an amazing, amazing material for certain applications and when managed in an appropriate fashion. When it comes to small plastics, really, our entire mission is to change people's perceptions about plastics and waste plastics. We feel very strongly that if we change our relationship towards it, we will manage it better, we will value it better, and it won't end up in the wrong places. So that's the whole fundamental kind of drive behind Smile Plastics to really showcase what an amazing material it is and its provenance and the fact that you can create really beautiful things from 100% recycled plastics that were aimed at um, landfill or, or, or incineration. I think we have very, very conflicted feelings because we are just so dependent on it. If you think about how the millennia that has gone into kind of producing plastics from all of the marine sediment, the millions of years, the transformation of that material in order to get into gas and oil, then all of the fractional distillation, you know, of, um, of it in order to create those sorts of polymers. What an immense journey that those materials have been on and how striking that we're designing it into things that are really only meant to be used once and then chucked in the bin. I think in some ways, poison is the dose when it comes to plastic. Um, as we were saying there, that it can be a, a really remarkable material that you can do um, unimaginable things with, you know, pre-industrially would have been unimaginable. And at the same time, because it's a byproduct of the petrochemical industry, it's artificially cheap. Um, this amazing material ought to be the most expensive thing you could ever specify, but it's but it's not. And had it remained very expensive, we might have used it more carefully <laughs> over the years. So I think the answer lies in identifying use for it that's appropriate to, um, to how long it lasts and what it can do, and moving away from single-use plastic. I mean, I think that that's a very clear problem. Wherever possible, designers have got a, a really important role to play in embracing that constraint. I think that um, something like 36% of plastic that's produced is used as packaging, and we know that that won't last for very long. There are some really nice examples out there where design has 
found really inventive ways of getting around that and not using plastic for something that will be then thrown away. And I think that then focusing on how we can use plastic uh, for higher value and to be around a lot longer, I think an obvious thing is um, water pipes. Where I live around the Olympic Games, they dug up all of the streets and replaced the Victorian water pipes with plastic ones. You know, those pipes have been in the ground for about 100 years. Um, the thing with plastic is that these new ones may be there for 500 years, and that, that seems like a really good thing. So I think that there are places where uh, using plastic can be can be really appropriate. Um, I think that we need to see plastic as a valuable resource uh, and not something that we can just go drill more out of the ground because at some point clearly we will we will stop doing that. Uh, and, and I think that that might take us back to the economics of the, of it as a material increasing in value just because it's, it becomes a scarce resource um, and that that might help yeah absolutely i mean i think our role as designers is finding how you engineer in the perceived value i think the specialist view and for me this is what i'm you know quite passionate about and i think pete and and, and what the team at sky are doing and then there are some other great examples are this really deep level knowledge and almost obsession around using the most appropriate materials in the most appropriate way, taking an o- overarching responsible view in terms of developing products, not just products for product's sake, but products that stand the test of time and therefore we keep them in the loop. And part of design's responsibility is to create that level of desire that that, that stands that test of time and means that, that products stay in there. And plastic has a, a fundamental part to play in that. And I think what we're seeing is that almost every client that we're working with across every different sector sees a future where plastic use is absolutely not single use, but it's actually used in the most appropriate way for the mo- most appropriate parts and other materials will come in and, and play a part in that. Typically, what we see is that when you look at all of the requirements that you have for different materials, it more often than not, plastic is the one that stands out that meets all of the criteria. Then it becomes the question of how do you design the, the perceived value into it? And what we're seeing on top of that is the more we can work with engineers and specialists, and we're working on a project at the moment where we need to use a particular 100% recyclable plastic. And, we, and this is a product that will, will be in the billions of units potentially, um, where optical clarity is required. But the materials that we're looking at, the plastics that we're looking at don't have currently have that optical clarity. We're working with a, you know, a set of engineers that are looking to control the crystalline growth and structure in the molding process. So it's at that level that you need to operate. And so for me, I get really frustrated. I know the team gets really frustrated where people pass over saying, well, we can't really, you know, you use too much plastic in the work that you're doing, but it's like, it's the depth of knowledge and the level of passion into creating a more responsible approach with more responsible materials and plastic being part of that, that is going to be the solution. And I think Again, going back to, you know, the work that Pete does, you were seeing, you know, Sonos have just launched a really interesting new product line that takes a really responsible approach to changing people's perceptions of what is perceived to be value in in terms of a plastic material. The previous podcast, we talked with Bang & Olufsen, who we've been working with, who, you know, they're the only technology company with real heritage. They absolutely use plastic as part of their product's makeup. But they're also getting to a point where all of their products can be rebuilt 
Is there a sense in which plastic is a victim of its own success? Because I think, as you raised there, the material has lots of virtues. It's easy to see why people are drawn to it and want to use it. But for instance, it doesn't always have to be used. And I'm thinking in terms of low value items here, there's a very interesting designer in Mexico called Fabian Capello. He's done a project around Jojolata in Guadalajara. And Jojolata is our, it's tin plate, basically. There are lots of workers in the city who produce beautiful tin plate objects for the home. And he said, there's a real problem, though. You know, in Guadalajara, it's easy to get a cheap tin plate colander. And there's no reason you should need anything else. It's locally produced, works brilliantly. But he said, you still have this problem of everyone still goes to Costco and buys a $6 plastic one, right? Because it's even cheaper. How can we make sure plastic is moving into projects where it is actually required and there's a more specialist use, as Richard described, and perhaps isn't being used on projects where another material maybe fits the bill as well, and plastics downsides are unwelcome there. What, what do you think could be done to help push that change? This is a very tricky one because I think it relates to socioeconomic status and be, a lot of people specify plastic for certain products because it's more affordable. It's a very difficult dynamic to shift. There needs to be policies involved to shift that. Like maybe there's a taxation on like if you don't recycle or if there's a virgin plastic. There's also a more nuanced approach and maybe a grassroots level whereby there are materials that do offer the same sorts of qualities as plastic, but is more localized and more available locally. Reframing the language around materials is something that I'm really passionate about. And it's something that I'm doing a lot of work around. My next book is about that, basically. There's a lot to be done around one greenwashing and then also a bit of a colonial attitude with wording and language when it comes to materials. There's a really great author called Max Liboron. I hopefully I've pronounced that correctly. They are, they have written a book called Pollution is Colonialism. And I think they really speak to that kind of mentality of like, oh, you know, pollution is someone else's problem and it gets dumped somewhere else, especially with our waste here in the UK. It gets sent to Malaysia and not China anymore. And I think that is a, very <laughs> colonial attitude. And I think design needs to change how we can be more accountable for that end of life situation. So when we're designing with plastic, how do we design for accountability? Design should be including that. I just want to go back to the tin plate example. One of the things that we're seeing a shift in is, and I think this is really interesting, is is clients asking us when you're looking at sort of global supply chains and global markets um, and you're producing in regions, is actually, if you think about plastics or any particular material, often the solution is prescribed by the manufacturing process, which is the biggest source of investment for a company. So to change those assets is is huge. That is a definite blocker. So if you go back to the start and you start thinking, okay, if we were to design these products, whatever they might be, so that they're not prescribing a particular 
process, it can create a future roadmap so that a product could be injection molded in a polypropylene now, but in five years time, that product can be exactly the same product. It doesn't need to change, but could be produced in tin plate. One of the projects that we're working on is exactly that. And it's, I've never experienced a brief that considers that because it completely changes the way you're thinking about every single form. Because typically, as Pete knows, you know, you'll go into a project and it will be, you'll be embroiled in the process of engineering tooling around, you know, the flow rates, finite element analysis, all of that sort of stuff that drives the quality and the perceived value of a plastic material or whatever material you're kind of uh, making something from. But actually, if you start thinking, what if we could design this product from the outset to be made from whatever is most appropriate in a particular region, therefore, you can start to close down and reduce the, the size of investment in assets that drive all of that equipment to be the same because it's made from the same materials. I mean, if you look at Coca-Cola tried it with going, moving from glass bottles to PET to aluminium, you know, they're searching for, but all of the, the, the techniques are prescribed by the material and the process required. What if you don't need that? What if you can, you can change the way you think about design? It's not as easy as, as it sounds, but it's a really interesting new approach that I, I've not been, I've not really experienced before. As a materials designer myself, we we look exclusively at availability of different plastic types and supply chains within the UK. That directly informs the materials that we decide to produce um, in terms of quality, consistency, uh, availability, and also the narrative um, that they have. So it's all dependent. The design ultimately is all dependent on what we can find. I think one thing that draws people to a particular material or a product is understanding its journey, its narrative, you know, understanding it through the, the material itself. You know, materials have that, that kind of language. With the materials that we're making, they're, you know, they're extraordinary materials. They come from very low value plastics applications, plastics um, packaging. But, you know, we also have materials that have come from refrigerator linings and um, other sort of kind of longer term plastics applications there. And we take it and we process it in a way that really respects its uh, kind of uh, its journey and its original lives. Um, and, and that is really shared in the actual material itself, in the surface, you can kind of understand uh, where that material has come from its previous life, from little barcodes and cosmetic uh, packaging text to little bits of foil in our kind of yogurt pot um, plastic. And we feel those additional layers and nuances actually add so much more to, um, to the plastic and our relationship to it when you start understanding about the provenance and the fact, let's be honest, that it's a completely unique material and every single section of that plastic is unique and every single sheet is going to be unique. No no one is going to be the same. And so we celebrate that, those nuances and the perfection and imperfection, I suppose. So we do, yeah, we do a lot to kind of elevate plastics in themselves because I think by valuing them, you genuinely do, you know, you're not going to throw throw it away, you know. 
There's so much plastic around. There, there shouldn't be such a big need to create plastic product from virgin plastics anymore. Traditional plastics recycling is it's very, you know, it's very carbon intensive. You have to bring the material temperatures up to very, very high uh, temperatures that degrade the plastic. But I think there's lots of innovations um, there and different approaches to plastics recycling. I mean, at, at Smart Plastics, we, um, you know, I've been talking about honouring the plastic and its previous life. We try not to denature and transform those polymers too much. We're not going through big compounding processes, taking it to really high temperatures so that we can honour the, the, the plastics. But it also means that the recyclability of them is definitely there and you should be able to achieve this repeating closed loop of the plastics and that's something that's very very important um, to us at Smart Plastics so that not only are our plastics 100% recycled but they're also 100% recyclable um, and that we as a manufacturer of those plastics also take responsibility um, for those plastics even after they've exchanged hands to our customers so offering buyback schemes and you know that that sort of thing because we genuinely do you know value the material we would love to have it back we would love to explore you know reworking it into to something else for um for our customers Can I ask, what's the designer's relationship to this? Because I think you set up earlier, in some cases, plastic is the right material choice. You know, in terms of the functioning of that product and what you want to achieve with it, plastic is the route to go down. How? What's your relation, though, to those systems that surround it? Some of what we've been talking about here, talking about, for instance, what happens to it at the end of its lifespan in terms of recycling, in terms of that material being reused in some way. I mean, very, very strong debates here as to who is actually responsible for that. But I think to to get us going, it would be good to hear what role you think the designer can play in that. How how do you factor those debates into your design process? I think, um, as as we said before, it is the closed loop, not, and not just that, but the repeated closed loop that's the really important part here. There's a lot of work that that we've put into um, in collaboration with our mechanical engineers who are really across all of this. All of the products that we're developing were able to separate into their various materials at end of life. So as we as we designing, going through all of the processes that that one would in developing a, a new design for a new product, we're also thinking about what happens to it at the end of life. We also do carbon calculations of the lifespan of the product because a lot of this is connected of course through to climate change issues and carbon so one of the things that we do is assemble of our products in a way that they can be disassembled into their constituent parts this is really important and it's it's actually a real constraint it seems you know it seems like a straightforward thing that's obvious why isn't everything made that way it does put a lot of um, headache into the process there's a lot of things that we haven't um, we've had to change design details because there's just no way that we could do it without bonding two separate materials together and that's something that we've agreed by sky we're not going to do that um, and and some of it is um, some manufacturers uh, we're able to take back products at the end of life and that's that kind of uh, helps an awful lot with this idea of managing a closed loop but that's not always possible. And I think the interesting thing here is how can we move the whole of material culture to a place where we stop 
throwing away plastic. And but the subscription model as a business model doesn't work for everything. So I think we need to think beyond that as designers. Part of what we've looked into is the economics of how things are recycled when they're recycled. So people who are recovering waste are now seeing those, but they're no longer products. They're now raw material. And there's a cost to extract the raw material much as there is to dig something out of the ground uh, in the first place. If the cost of extracting it is higher than the value of the material, it will get thrown away. So a lot of the things that we can do that are sort of unseen to the consumer will help it to be lower cost to extract the material than to throw it away at the end of life and so that we can ma maintain the value of that material as something that can be reused, um, hopefully find its way to smile plastics and get, uh, you know, uh, represent something new. We have, we have all of your, um, samples here in our material library. It's, it's something that we're really interested in, but so there is a lot between mechanical engineering and design that we can do there in order to just make it far more likely that recycling or recovery of parts will happen at the end of life. And I think that then the other thing that we can do is to reduce material as much as possible, reducing weight and um, eliminating waste wherever possible. We kind of look a lot at the process of manufacturing as well to, to get an understanding of how are there certain design decisions that we're making that are having a, a, a an implication on the way that something will be manufactured. On the purging of tools, for example, you change an injection molding from one color to another, that you will purge the tools. They, they need to run plastic through the tool until it comes out the, the new color and there's no, no trace of the old color left. So then, then again, a um, supply team will go in with uh, so making sure that our the way that we're doing that is that we're not wasting any of that material that it can be reused. So I think that there's a, there's, there's a lot that can be done, um, in terms of the way that we design and assemble products, which is just thinking about how they get disassembled. And then I think that the longevity, like building high value products really carefully and really beautifully in a way that we move away from it being a, a, a short term thing. I, you know, I do think that. One of the most useful things that we could do would be to change the language of thrown away. Um, because nothing goes away. There is no thrown away. It goes somewhere. And as we were saying earlier, if pollution becomes so quickly becomes someone else's problem with, with all of the implications of that, I think that if we could be ourselves as con consumers, as well as manufacturers thinking about where does it go when it's not the, the device anymore and making sure that that's, that's baked in from the very beginning. Could I just jump in there? Cause it just, I was just thinking about that point around disassembly. I mean, it's like Pete said, it seems like such a simple part of the process of, of engineering and kind of creating a product that's made up of multiple components. But I wonder whether there's any detail around the 10%, if we're only recycling 10% of um, plastic waste, how, how, what percentage of that 90% that isn't is due to plastic products being made up of more than one plastic that you can't disassemble to recycle? Even if you look at really simple packaging solutions, whether that's, you know, milk bottles or even Coca-Cola bringing in their monomaterial bottles where the cap and the the lid don't separate anymore and they're a monomaterial that can be fully recycled. There's huge amount of investment into the engineering of that. And it's the day-to-day -day lives of and the bane of engineers' lives. But the difference that makes to the ease of the system of recycling and keeping things in the loop and those those hundred percent recyclable polyprop PET being pushed back in is is a massive part of what Pete and I do every day. It's kind of that's the, the at the smallest level, the the work that has to be done. To, to create products that, that are future-proofed uh, using plastic. 
There's an interesting political dimension to all of this. And I think this is a debate that plays out in design, which when we talk about closed loop and the desire to reuse and recycle materials and products, which I, I think is desirable, but you know, you have some people who would say, I actually don't think that goes far enough. We're too obsessed over closing the loop. And that encourages us to continue to consume thoughtlessly. You know, that what we need to target is more the consumption and the rate of product we're producing and the rate at which we're getting through it. And I think this is a relevant discussion for plastic because whether fairly or unfairly, as a material, plastic has kind of come to be the poster child for consumerism, right? It's the material we associate with that style of consumption. Um, I don't know if there's a question there, but I'd be very curious to hear people's reflections on that because I, I, I mean both sides probably have a point it would be great to close that loop but there does seem to be this underlying issue around consumption with plastic that remains even if you do that right um so yeah I'd, I'd be curious to hear if anyone has any reflections around that or, or thoughts on it i think um we are living in a capitalist society as we all know and I think the rate at which we are producing is so high to the point where we have so many leftover products and materials that aren't really useful to anyone at a certain point. And when it comes to a material like plastic, knowing that it outlives us for hundreds and hundreds of years for some types of plastics, it really doesn't make sense. And because we are overproducing most of the time, we don't really know what to do with what's remaining. We need to reconsider what that means in this current society. Do we really need to be producing at that scale anymore? And I think scale is a really big issue when it comes to plastic production. Because we can produce at different rates of scale and at different rates of production. And it doesn't all need to be mass. So I think we also need to redesign that a little bit. Maybe what we need to do is think about all the different levels of scale at which we can produce at. We can go back to the very basics, batch production, mass production, craft, bespoke, and all the in-between. Because I don't think we always need to consider mass production as the only way to produce Maybe what might happen with that in mind is that we might specify other materials and then maybe like Pete's example was a really great one to like consider design for disassembly, design for with mono materials, design for versatility, design with longevity and all sorts of things. When we understand the different scales of production, we can then understand like the different systems involved to like design into so the materials can be applied way more holistically and in a very purposeful way. Politically, that makes sense for this space that we're in right now. But when it comes to capitalism, it doesn't make sense. So we need to almost reframe what capitalism is and design can actually do that because design is political, whether we like it or not. I think your challenge of mass production is, is really, really interesting because it's almost, and, and I think Richard 
alluded to this earlier that um, sometimes as a designer, it's almost like a, assumed that it's a, a foregone conclusion that you're going to make something in plastic. Right? So what, what shape shall we mold the plastic in? And uh, in the same way, it's assumed as a foregone conclusion that we will mass produce this in uh, as large numbers as is possible. And I think that we're moving to a, a, a place now, the industry is moving to a place where we actually can and may have to rethink these things. So I think that the production technology is changing. Additive manufacturing is is getting to a place where the idea of tooling up for something and just running your production line as rapidly and efficiently as possible, um, it, it, there's an alternative today where we can be much more agile, more attentive to customers' needs, more more attentive to changing needs. And with that comes this idea that maybe mass isn't always the solution, and maybe for certain types of products, we could have quite efficient, much smaller runs of production. And that, I think, will have a knock-on effect to the idea of consumption. It feels to me very much that We'll look back in 50 or 100 years time at, at this time as being a, a, an extraordinary time that when people were just binging on low cost material. Um, I think we're just on the inflection point. I feel quite optimistic really because everywhere that we're looking, whether it's through our supply chain or working with other designers or manufacturers, ev- everybody has turned to this now. Um, the idea of rethinking plastic or the idea of rethinking carbon, embedded carbon in products, is, it's, it's now very much everywhere. And I think that this could well be coupled with just a change in, in the nature of production uh, because technology is enabling it, geopolitics is pushing it. We may well see the drive to thoughtless consumption being tempered a little by some of these developments. That's the next... Um, phase, isn't it? Additive manufacturing and batch or kind of low scale production, 3D printing or at scale. That brings with it a whole s- new set of challenges around zero waste in build. Because when you look at something like an injection molded part, yes, there's a huge cost in- and invested in it, but the part is engineered now to only use the amount of product that it needs to create the part and there's zero, you know, minimal waste. When you start to look at using 3D printers, you look at the amount of waste that comes off the final part. It's pretty inefficient. And yes, you can recycle it, but it's actually more. Co- so there's a whole new set of challenges, but they need to be worked at to look at these opportunities, opportunities at different scale. And I think going back to the point I was saying about the project where we're looking at different regions, it's all about the scale of production doesn't need to be, it's going to be 7 billion units. It could be a hundred thousand in a particular material in this particular region. And then you can start to look at different production techniques, different manufacturing. Um, different resources that can supply that more locally. And then when you look at end of life, what, what, what happens? What's the most appropriate material to use considering that going forward? A lot of what we're talking about is really resonating with me. And I think scale is very, very interesting when we're small scale batch manufacturer. Um, in the UK, yes, we could become a mass manufacturer if we really wanted. We're very sure that the demand is there, but we're thinking very carefully about how, how we grow, how we scale. Yeah. You know, I mentioned earlier that we're, we're shipping a lot. We're exporting about 60% of what we're producing at the moment, which is fantastic in many ways as a big demand around the world, and rightly so. But the way that we scale is very, very important to us. And we want to stay small and local, depending on where the materials are, but also where the demand is. We want essentially to create 
a distributed network of micro factories around the world so that we can operate at the scale um, required, you know, for, for, for larger scale international brands that we um, service. But it's all about being local so that we can source those local materials. And those materials will probably vary depending on what's locally available and also what the demand is within those regions as well. So it's a very interesting debate about um, scale and how you actually get the you know, service the, 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 the demands and, and thinking quite, well, I suppose, outside of the box and creatively about how you can achieve those ambitions. I wanted to ask one final question. In some ways, I think it's quite a basic question, but I'd be curious to hear your perspective on it. And this connects to aesthetics. There are certain materials which we're very culturally attuned to see as desirable as they age, you know, metal develops a beautiful patterner. We're very okay with the idea of older wood products and almost see the older ones as more desirable. They've got more character. People are attracted to that. It strikes me we don't necessarily have that relationship with plastic. I think if you said to lots of people, older plastics they have in mind, you you know, a material that has slightly yellowed, that doesn't look great. I think culturally we're quite programmed to see pristine new plastics as attractive, right? We love the colours, the brightness, the perfection. And I wondered if that's a problem because it seems then we're very drawn to the newness of plastic, whereas what we've talked about a lot in this conversation is we want longer lasting, well-designed products, you know, that can serve over, over an extended period of time. Is this an issue for plastic that it's not necessarily seen as a material that ages as beautifully as some others? And if that is the case, perhaps it's not. But how how can you kind of grapple with that within design? I think yes. I think the answer is yes, it is a problem. Probably because of the way that um, plastic has mostly been used, it is associated as something more temporary than than very long lasting. I do think, though, that that's something that as designers we can tackle because we are talking, you know, as we've, we've said a few times about a material that could last hundreds of years. So there's no problem with its longevity. I think it, there's a lot that we can do to change the perception that like the aesthetics around that. We've been putting a lot of thought into how you move on from these perfect uh, finishes of virgin plastic. It does have a very particular aesthetic. A lot of what we've looked at is when you, when you do recycle plastic, there is some breakdown in mechanical properties. And rather than see that as a fault and a problem, we're kind of leaning into that as a creative opportunity and seeing what we can do. Uh, and, and there are various things that we're, we're looking at doing that can actually make, um, you know, we can embrace that. So, so I think we have the opportunity to, re-establish our relationship with this material and, and move it on. Yeah, I mean, ab- absolutely. I'd kind of second that. I think um, the opportunity is there and I think it, it, it depends on deep level knowledge, collaboration with different different specialists to engineer the value and design the value into a product that, that really can stand the test of time. As an example, we're working on a project at the moment where we're working with a, a sort of leading manufacturing and mechanical engineer who kind of led the development teams at Dyson, um, together with one of the world's leading uh, material scientists who, who specializes in particular areas of plastics, together with us as a design team to find 
a solution that meets all of the different requirements, but ultimately engineers something that people don't see as plastic. I think that's the thing that we've got to, to do. It's creating that value in a, in a, and using the material in a way people have never seen or expected before. And on the flip side of that, it's stopping single use. It's stopping plastic being seen as a single use material and driving that from both sides really will be the end solution. But also looking at oh, what materials come next. What is the next thing that that can be invested in that that will start to come through and, and replace all of the kind of capabilities and attributes that this material has that that again as 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 oil runs out won't be there in the future. I think that um plastics do have some of those limitations in terms of aging. I suppose there's a plastics material designer at Smart Plastics, we we actually think quite carefully about the design of the surface so that actually it doesn't look too bad as it wears over time. And you can do quite a bit with the certain kind of pat- patination of the material or the material choices. So I think, yes, there are constraints there, but I think it really is about thinking creatively and designing a material that's going to get bashed around a bit, you know, that it can accommodate that in the surface and, and, and the texture. So I think a lot of it comes down to design and designing materials better. I think this is also a conversation around newness and existing materials, because a lot of what's desirable, like you were saying, Ollie, is new and shiny and perfect. There's maybe an underlying or subconscious feeling that it's clean and hygienic and therefore like desirable because we're going to be taken care of. When it comes to recycling plastics, pigment and color are a really important component to that. And a lot of the time we see recycled plastics as being more cloudy and opaque. So therefore we're not really achieving the same transparent levels as we are when we're seeing plastic as new or virgin. So the perceptions around that need to be a bit more considered when it comes to how we apply that material when it is a bit more opaque and or translucent in some way, shape or form. And I think the coloration or the color that's integrated into the plastic could be solid colors as well as the really beautiful marbling techniques that you have at Smile, Rosalie. And I think there's an opportunity to design for that in mind, design with opacity, design with all these different levels of transparency that plastic can offer. We have to then consider maintenance. So how do we maintain and care for these plastics as they age? So is there an aftercare solution involved when we think about plastic and aging? When we care for, say, brass, we have a brass polish to maintain that. Is there an alternative for plastic? And I think that's something we can start to consider as well. And I think maintenance is a good point on which to end the conversation because that's sort of at the core of what we've been talking about today. How can we as a society, as a design industry, maintain a healthier, a more honest relationship with plastic, thinking through what it's good for, what it's not so good for, and how can we maintain systems that ensure 
that plastic is treated as it needs to be if it's going to remain useful rather than continuing as a problem for us to face. So I'd like to end the conversation by thanking all of you for your time. Thank you, Sita, Rosalie, Richard and Peter. It's been a great conversation and I hope everyone has enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Very much so. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Where Next, a podcast made in collaboration with Map Project Office. The series is hosted by Map, along with me, Ollie Stratford. It's produced by Evie Hall, with editing by Laura Chapman and mixing by Oscar Hjell. To catch our next episode of Where Next, you can follow Map Project Office on Instagram at at mapprojecto. That's O for office. And you can also subscribe to the podcast by following Decenio Podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from.